Investment Arbitration Reporter, also known as IA Reporter, is our sponsor for Season 5. IA Reporter is an online service focused on international investment law. IA Reporter's team of expert analysts offer up-to-the-minute coverage of new arbitrations, recent decisions, and notable policy developments. Last year, IA Reporter launched a new content feature, a searchable dataset of more than 1,500 ISDS cases, including party, arbitrator, and counsel information. To find out why the world's leading law firms, universities, and government agencies use IA Reporter for current awareness, due diligence, and conflict checking, visit iareporter.com. Hello, and welcome to the Arbitration Station. Is that the main issue of ISDS today? So we cannot invite Joel to the next episode. You're the native speaker. It can't be very unique. Unique means one of a kind. It's either unique or it's not. It's like you're, you're either <laughs> pregnant or you're not. Did you say Gayard? Mm-hmm. Yeah. With a D. I should not pronounce the D. I'm getting DCF tattooed on my neck tomorrow, actually. It's a question I'm putting up there. <laughs> Hello, and welcome to the Arbitration Station. My name is Joel Dahlquist. And I'm Sadia Petit. And I'm Brian Kotick. And we are your co-host for another episode of the Arbitration Station podcast, covering both commercial and investment arbitration, 66% serious substance and 33% general ponderings and musings of the arbitration world. And a little bit more than 1%, Brian Kotick, for this episode. It kind of is the late <laughs> night show with Brian Kotick. Eat the Brian podcast. <laughs> <laughs> I'm kicking you guys off the air. It is all about me this episode. It's like a coup. <laughs> Exactly. A coup de pod. <laughs> we are talking about mediation this podcast. You are. And I actually, I bring this up on the, on the podcast, on one of the interviews. I said, it's so funny because in our first season, Joel, we had a happy fun time about mediation where the first line was mediation. Who cares? And now <laughs> it's a full that. episode. <laughs> <laughs> but it's med-arb and arb-med-arb, so it's still arbitration, so don't don't change the channel. <laughs> no, no, it's, it's related to arbitration, <laughs> of course it is, yeah. Well, I think I took the lead because you guys were both very busy this week, or will be busy next week, so you had a planning week, whatever it may be. So what have you guys been up to? Jill, tell us about your life first. I have been busy, actually. I, I've had a busy work week, a couple of weeks, really, in, in general, with various things going on. And in addition to that, I've done some other things, including uh, mock moot arbitrated in the, the Frankfurt investment arbitration moot. And I think the final of that moot is taking place as we record, actually. Oh, really? Yeah, I meant to stream it on YouTube, but I'm doing this instead because I had to do something podcast related this week. It was it was very, very interesting. I did it remotely, of course. And you have also mooted. We maybe have mooted at the same time at the Frankfurt moot, Brian, right? Or have you only? Yeah, 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 yeah. And it's, it's always an amazing experience, especially when it's in Frankfurt. And of course, this year, unfortunately, it wasn't in Frankfurt. It was remotely, which is a bit sad for the students participating. But uh, it's always an extraordinary case built on, on history for the buffs. And uh, obviously, like many of them, global big moot court competitions, teams from all over the world. I really, really enjoyed that and it brought me back. I wish I could have been there in person. On the other hand, I probably would not have been there in person had it been in Frankfurt this year because I had a busy week. Right. It does so help. The... Did, did you have more participation of, um, you know, like different universities because it was virtual this year? 
don't know. We would have to ask oh, okay. uh, yeah. Sabine Conrad or some of her co-organizers. I only saw, I think, eight teams, and they were very diverse. But that's not the the best. Yeah, they uh, do regional moots for like where there is over participation in order to allow mm -hmm. more space for for other schools. But I mean, I can only imagine. I mean, there's a lot of teams that can't come because of funding. So. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And sometimes, you know, they look for funding to come and they get money from firm sponsors that they, they, can, they right. can travel and stuff. So I was just thinking maybe this time, this was one of the positive stuff of the pandemic that maybe more students could participate. Right. Yeah. I also spoke on a panel yesterday on, uh, on Thursday on shared parental leave organized by the Equal Rights in Arbitration Pledge. Yes. Is that a question mark? <laughs> yes, I was, the, the, the ERA pledge. I was just yeah. trying to read it out loud to myself, um, which was very, very interesting. So interesting, in fact, that we will try to recreate that with, with you guys as well on the podcast in a soon-to-be-published episode about shared parental leave in the world of arbitration. I have some very strong feelings. Not being a parent, nor really planning to be one uh, tomorrow, it, it's not really my place to talk about this, but... As I said on that panel, I think it also is actually valuable if white men without kids take part in this conversation and try to elevate it beyond sort of the, the women's issue it has been treated as historically, which obviously it should not be and cannot be if we want to make some headway. Because white males without kids have never had a say on the question that, <laughs> in the past historically. She's back, episode 12. <laughs> I mean, I, I take your point on it. <laughs> And we, we have time to develop this when we actually record this episode. <laughs> I think you're right. But, but uh, with this, on a serious note, the problem is, of course, that the rules and the norms are written by white men who don't have kids. Yeah, you don't want the conversation in an echo chamber. You yeah. need to have it start filtering into the, the, the white the, single man. <laughs> the, the conversation I'm talking about is the conversation about how it is desirable to have a more equitable and more equally distributed parental leave. That's the okay. conversation I'm talking about. And that's a conversation where I have the impression traditionally that the, the senior white men of the field have not really been very active and interested, frankly. Yeah. No, looking forward to, to talking about this. So, Joel, you are not an expert on children or, <clears throat> or women's rights. However, you are an expert on a book you just published. <laughs> Tell us about it. Thank you for the forced bridge and <laughs> the intro to allow me to log roll now that my doctoral dissertation is actually published with Brill, finally, a couple of years too late, but it's out. It's, I was thinking maybe I should make it, force you guys to read it and make it the book club um, book to read the next I'd time. I'd love to. It's, it, it's already on the way in my mail, so I can't wait to read I've it. I've already read some chapters. Tell us, yeah, tell yeah. us the title. Come on, Jill, you need to give us more meat. Uh, it's the application of commercial arbitration rules in investment <gasps> treaty disputes. Is that a question mark again? That's your PhD. <laughs> you should know what the title so is. I, I had to rewrite the title, of course. Oh, right. Okay. Make it more marketable. Not, yeah, the book is not identical to the dissertation, which is longer and more sort of scientific in many ways. Ah, uh, so you've cut it down a lot. Yes, and then updated a few things. I look at a lot of set-aside decisions, which our listeners will know because that's been something I've been talking about since we started this four years ago. And those, obviously, I think I stopped looking at decisions at like 2017 cutoff date or maybe 2018 for the dissertation. And now I've, I've spent some time 
ably assisted by Jan Kunster, who is involved in, in ah. everything we do. Uh, he helped me with some research to find more court cases so that the book would be a little bit more recent when it's out, which it Amazing. is now. And you can go and, and uh, buy it. It is crazy expensive, like every other academic book. And I don't see any of that money, but the book is out. We'll have to contact Bro for a, a code that people can use. Hopefully. Yes. Come on. We're promoting the book. Come on, Bro. Come on, yeah. Come on, bro. Come on, bro. <laughs> well, congratulations, Joel. Huge, huge, momentous occasion. Yes. Thank you very much. Right. Um, I just filed a set-aside um, application, and I have to say, horrible. I, I do, I'm so glad we don't work in domestic courts day in and day out, because it is just... Can you say which courts? Uh, English. Oh. Yeah, English courts. Oh, okay. It's just like... Section 69, section 68, what are you talking about? And then about? that refers to rule 45, <laughs> but not, nowhere in rule 45 does it tell you that you need to write a skeleton argument if you're filing a section 69 challenge and that if you do that, then it needs to be 15 pages, not too much, not too little, have a little bit of this, a stamp there, oh, yeah. roll it into dough, turn it around, bake it for three hours, <laughs> and then submit it. And if you don't, we'll reject it. Thank but, you. Brian, could it be England and not just domestic courts in general? Could yeah, it I, anywhere, anywhere. I, I like, I've Rules? done it. What are those? I've like <laughs> helped local council. I've like worked with local council, but I've never had to be the one that was the procedural rule gatekeeper. And, uh, that's, yeah. and that was like, oh, I mean, it's it was, it was a minefield, but yeah, got in. So set asides, Joel, thank you for <laughs> taking on that juggernaut because that's not fun. Uh, well, yeah, so last week and the weeks before were a bit busy as well for me uh, at work. So sorry, Brian, couldn't join you for, for the interviews. Okay. Uh, yeah, just some procedural incidents. Uh, those who <laughs> will recognize themselves, understand what I'm referring to. Uh, <laughs> no more comments than that. Uh, but in addition to the, the council work as usual, um, there's been uh, some 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 exciting stuff on the side. So I also was uh, speaking at a panel last week on um, uh, diversity uh, on the bench, uh, which was actually on a forthcoming book uh, by Freya Benton. So that was an ASIL conference. So yeah, it was interesting. And uh, we had our dear friend Manuel Casas on the panel as well, who shared his views. It was fun. Oh, and nice. uh, actually, uh, we are going, I'm going to use the discussion to fuel the discussion uh, on a happy fun time for this episode. So uh that should be interesting. Amazing. And uh, working on the next week's annual conference for ASIL, which is going to happen on the between the 24th and 26th of March. So if you still haven't registered, you still have time to do it. Um, that's going to be fun. Um, all right. Well, we have two um, excellent interviews. Uh, the interviewee is not the interviewer. Uh, we have uh, Anne Corinne Grill, who will be talking about mediation, ARB, MedARB, and MedARB in the commercial arbitration context. And then to make a clean um, schism between the two interviews, we have James Claxton, who I give an introduction, I give an introduction to both of these people in their um, respective segments. And he will be tackling um, mediation in the investment arbitration world. Yay, James, been wanting to have you for a long time. I know. <laughs> I actually sat down with Anchoring Grill at when we covered Paris Arbitration Week three years ago and wanted her on the podcast. So both of these are long awaited and happy to have them in like a cohesive structure that we have now. Before we go completely non-cohesive and all over the place for happy fun time. Yes. 
Sadia, I'm looking at you. It's your happy fun time. <laughs> it's my happy fun time? <laughs> it's, it's all of ours. That's the uh, whole point. Yes, exactly. That's the whole point. So our happy fun time is on diversity of diversity. So it concerns all of us and it concerns the word diversity. What does it mean? And what should it mean for arbitration? So we're going to call it diversity of diversity. More in the segment. <laughs> Amen. All right, let's go on. So we would like to welcome Anne-Karin Griel from AKG Advisory to the podcast. Hello, how are you? Hi, I'm good. Good morning. This, has, this interview has been a long time coming because we sat next to each other at Paris Arbitration Week uh, at a lunch, and I really miss those spontaneous interactions now that we're in COVID times. But I see that you haven't been uh, lackadaisical during COVID times since you've started, you've gone out on your own. Yeah, that's true. You know, if you had told me that that this would be uh, what I would be doing during, you know, a global pandemic, I think I would have told you you're crazy. But, <laughs> you know, the stars aligned and I had this moment where I felt like, okay, it's now and never. And I just ventured out and uh, we've been sailing and uh, it's been great so far. And, uh, you know, I hope to keep up the good work and the good spirits. Absolutely. Well, I think um, when we had our discussion in Paris Arbitration Week, I think has now factored in a bit in your new firm and one of the reasons why we reached out to you, which is your not focus, but I think you're really a champion of inserting mediation into this um, traditional arbitration framework. So not only the med arb but also this arb med arb so inserting mediation um into the in arbitral proceedings in order mm -hmm. to kind of find some sort of alternative dispute resolution um but i'd really like to just use this segment to pick your brain on the subject if you don't mind no not at all <laughs> <laughs> so can you just kind of i i mean i gave a very um pedestrian definition of arb med arb but can you kind of um, lay out the principle for us? Oh, of course. I mean, uh, it's very straightforward, actually. You know, and I think the reason why we have those different, um, you know, combinations, mid-arb, arb-mid-arb, or arb-med, is also a function of, you know, parties trying to be creative, especially with a view to ensuring enforceability of the outcomes. Mm -hmm. So basically, I would say, and at least this is my, uh, you know, European Austrian perspective on international mediation proceedings, enforcement is an issue. Um, you know, Singapore Convention and other initiatives are well known by now. But I mean, in terms of availability and applicability, we still have a few miles to cover. Mm -hmm. and therefore, council are looking for, you know, options of, you know, building in this aspect of enforceability and ARPMED ARP can give you that because, um, you know, the way you procure for this type of procedure is you make sure that whatever comes out of a mediation process uh, is then uh, kind of built into an arbitral award by consent. And there you I go see. in terms of enforcement. So I think um, that part is what makes this relatively new 
setting, I would say, quite uh, convincing, quite attractive to parties, and also opens up a new avenue for, for counsel to really, you know, when they sit down with the client to add the the goals of the DSB resolution process to really take it beyond a purely adversarial procedure with all the detriments that we hear about uh, regularly, you know, right. the time commitment, the cost commitment and all of that. So um, what you have described in your intro is basically what it is about. It's a negotiation, I would say, commercial negotiation formally built into your regular arbitral process and the way you do it is you know you either agree on that for before the conflict or you do it ad hoc when you're in a situation where in your case analysis you realize that probably we don't need an arbitral award to take us further do you in your experience have you seen it um that these, this agreement to mediate or negotiate has come after the initiation of the arbitration, or is it typically found already in the dispute resolution provision in the contract? In my experience, we looked at the issue of building in a mediation window into the arbitral pr process once the dispute had arisen. So it was after the fact. Okay. Um, when, when you look at... Um, procedural rules, mediation rules, that is, in, uh, you know, the, the context of the world's leading uh, dispute resolution service providers, ICC, LCIA, also here in Vienna at the VIAC, you find model clauses that already contain this, you know, tiered approach, but it seems we're still um, a few steps away from council actually integrating those clauses in their parties or clients uh, commercial contracts so right. basically i think you know this is where our job as dispute resolution council becomes so exciting because you know it requires some sort of creativity to mm -hmm. deal with that idea of of you know building in a mediation window on an ad hoc basis so you need to know a little bit about mediation, about what you're trying to achieve, and you need to know a little bit about procedure and uh, you know what what needs to be there to make this um, you know tiered or you know cascading approach really workable. Absolutely. Can you so when you're in an arbitration or you're you know about to start a dispute and what what are some of the things that you can see already happening that you say, okay, this would be actually perfect for mediation? Is it just something that is more commercial in nature or maybe something that the parties, it seems that the parties are in agreement on and so you limit the scope of the arbitration? What are kind of the hallmark examples of um, the things that would be ripe for mediation or is it just case by case? It is definitely case by case. So I, I would never say there's like this uh, checklist that you mm -hmm. can work through and, and you're safe. Um, usually in my cases, how it works is, is that, you know, I receive a bunch of documents from my clients and then they tell me, you know, what happened and what led to the dispute. And mm -hmm. I see usually um, some 
pre-dispute correspondence. And from that, you get a sense of, you know, where the lawyers are really trying to take the case. And when you realize that, you know, it's not so much about, you know, having uh, a legal question that can only be resolved by a third party decision maker, such as an arbitrator. Mm -hmm. And when you get a sense that, you know, this is just, you know, some flare up in an otherwise stable business relationship where right. you also have this, you know, um, outlook into the future, a, a future commercial perspective that you want to safeguard or, you know, a need to save costs and, and time, um, then these, I would say, are indicators to, to really, you know, bring up the issue with your client and, and, and ask them things like, you know, did you try to settle this? Who are the people you've spoken with so far? Uh, what is their position? Uh, what's going on at the level of counsel? And so you probe into the possibility mm -hmm. of turning something that seems very adversarial into, you know, a joint effort to overcome um, a roadblock. And, and, and that's basically the first step. But, you know, there's also other soft factors, such as the reputation of the company that could play into this. Right. Um, or just, you know, the factual matrix of the case. If it's not so clear cut, if there are a lot of things that require expert knowledge, you know, you can sort that out usually more easily in a context that is not an arbitration or court litigation. Right. Now, I'd like to really focus on the procedure. So, you mm -hmm. know, let's say you notice um, you're in discussions with your client and you notice that there might be an opportunity to mediate or negotiate and you want to push that mediation button and get it started. Do you switch into a different procedural framework or is it just more of an ad hoc discussion that you and your experience will be able to manage? Or if, if someone who has never mediated before and thinks that there is an opportunity to mediate, where would they turn to to kind of regulate that framework? Well, you know, the first thing that I would advise to do is to see um, whether the parties agreed on a very concrete institutional setting right. and to see whether that setting also provides for mediation. So um, from what I see in my practice is that, you know, the leading arbitral institutions now also offer mediation rules. And usually the way those rules are designed is to accommodate combining different sets of methods into more or less one proceeding. So to give you an example, the, the Vienna mediation rules uh, were designed to really allow you to go back and forth. And um, the, the beauty about it is in, in, in that setting concretely that, you know, switching between arbitration and mediation does not come with additional administrative costs for the parties. Mm -hmm. So, you know, that too is something that should not be underestimated. You know, you put down the money and you get dispute resolution services and we don't put a price tag on it and we don't put a label on it. So a first recommendation under the arbitral rules that 
have been agreed between the parties, is there also an option to mediate? And um, then if you feel like, uh, you know, you're not so experienced in, in, you know, applying mediation concepts to the dispute resolution process, reach out to the institution itself. Usually you have case handlers there that are um, specifically trained in mediation who have first-hand knowledge in administering cases like that, and they would give you the necessary advice, be it as to how to initiate the procedure, be it as to how to select the neutral serving as mediator, right. whether you would want to work with one mediator or a team of mediators, and so on and so forth. So, you know, that that connection with the institution, I think, is also a really important step that you could take as counsel. And I know that you've been appointed as mediator in certain cases. And um, how does one, how, how do you, how does an institution or anyone look to find a mediator? Is there any, you know, I know in certain jurisdictions you have um, education to become an arbitrator. Are there similar ones to be a mediator or is it mostly just experienced based? Well, you know, the thing is, is that mediation per se is not a regulated profession. Mm -hmm. In that sense, uh, you know, anybody can be a mediator. And I'm not saying that this is a bad thing, quite to the contrary. Mm. You can pick anyone who you place your trust in as a party. That's the main thing that counts. You need to connect with that person and trust them to guide you through this process professionally and impartially. Mm -hmm. um, of course, you know, it's good to have a person who's trained in mediation because, you know, there are certain uh, tools that you employ as a mediator and those are not necessarily legal tools. These are communication tools. And, you know, these are things that you do first and foremost to signal to the parties at all times that you have their joint interests in view mm -hmm. and not one party's interests over the other party's interests. And, uh, you know, it seems almost trite to say that communication is so important in mediation, <laughs> but it is. <laughs> and um, so how do you find your ideal mediator? I think, you know, when you're approaching it from an institutional context, um, the case handlers at the institutions usually keep lists of individuals that they know they would entrust with, you know, high profile commercial cases. Right. Um, these are clearly people who have trained with leading um, training institutions and who have considerable experience. Um, other than that, of course, um, you would refer to your network of, um, of professional colleagues. Right. Um, and they usually also have recommendations for you. And then, of course, I mean, Dr. Google always has good <laughs> advice, too. Uh, so um, that's really how you go about it. But I think at this point, you know, I would very strongly look for referrals from my professional circles. Right. And uh, I mean, I forgot, of course, um, now that we have, 
you know, the leading legal directories also opening up mediation chapters. Uh, that's also oh, a that's very great. good resource. And it also tells me that mediation matters. Now that we have those listings of professionals, it's really a good sign. And it's it's really a good sign from the service perspective. You know, it's, mm-hmm. it's mostly clients looking into those professionals so that there is a market and, and, and that's very positive, I think. Absolutely. And you mentioned about, you know, re- referrals to colleagues or are there any soft law, <clears throat> excuse me, codes of conduct for mediators? <clears throat> we have the code of conduct for arbitrators that or the draft code of conduct for arbitrators and these mm-hmm. considerations of with double hatting. And do you see those similar considerations happening in in mediation? Absolutely. Well? Absolutely. So, um, you know, mediation does not happen in a vacuum. You might be tempted to say, you know, this is a procedure that is not governed by a procedural framework. It's not as strict or foreseeable as arbitration. But that does not mean that we don't have any ground rules that apply to professional mediation um, proceedings. Mm -hmm. And, you know, codes of conduct for mediators are one very pertinent aspect of those ground rules. So what you need to know is, is that, um, you know, there's various codes of conduct, conduct that can apply. So when you choose a mediator, it's really advisable to also address with them, uh, you know, the, the, the deontological frameworks that this person adheres to. So in my case, for example, I am uh, certified with CEDA in London, and they, of course, have the CEDA code of conduct. And um, other than that, for example, there's a European uh, code of conduct for mediators issued by the European Commission within the framework of the mediation directive. Or um, you look at other institutions and, 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 and they also have their codes of conduct. So check with your mediator what their framework is. Right. Ideally, they bring it up out of their own motion to disclose it, to, to also give the parties a comfort to say, you know, I play by those rules. And, you know, they're very basic. It's, mm. of course, about impartiality. It's, of course, about confidentiality, um, you know how you're supposed to conduct the mediation in a way that, you know, gives you all the benefits, you know, on the one hand, driving the procedure, you know, getting the parties to point where their negotiation leads to actual results. And you're not Mm -hmm. just, you know, stepping around the hot topics. And then on the other hand, remaining fully in the hands of the parties, you know, steering uh, in a way where both parties feel their best interests taken care of, Um, you know, in terms of, for example, the order in which the issues are tackled, little things like that, that seem very, um, you know, unimportant, but Mm -hmm. make a difference when you're actually in the situation working with the parties and their counsel. Um, Could could the background of the mediator affect the mediation procedure? So for example, in the US, um, I've been in a mediation where they've had um, sidebars with each of the parties. So the mediator meets separately with one of the parties to kind of understand Mm -hmm. their um, point of view or maybe find out something confidential that they don't want released to the other side. 
Mm-hmm. Um, and I'm sure you have a certain perspective coming from Austria and that you, I hear you also registered in London. So do you see that the jurisdiction could make a difference or the jurisdiction of the mediator or the jurisdiction of the mediation could affect the procedure? Absolutely. Okay. I mean, just to, to speak from the perspective of Austria. Yeah. Um, so here, this issue of caucusing, what you just described, you know, the mediator meeting with one party alone and then with the other party also alone to really discuss what is on their mind, what drives um, their um, positions mm-hmm. in the dispute, really. Um, in Austria, caucusing is not really a tool that is accepted. Why? Because Austrian mediators, uh, when they are trained, um, the focus is on, you know, being an impartial neutral uh, in the sense that you work for all parties at the same time and not just for the two parties in parallel. So basically that means, you know, you should always discuss whatever is the issue that is up for discussion in the plenary with everybody present. Mm -hmm. Um, This is a very different philosophy uh, from what we see in the Anglo-Saxon tradition where caucusing is really a cornerstone of mediation. And when you train in, uh, you know, jurisdictions such as the UK or the United States, you're specifically prepared Uh, on how to conduct those caucuses in a meaningful way, you know, that shuttling between the parties, ensuring that, you know, what needs to be kept confidential remains confidential. Mm -hmm. And uh, so, yes, your jurisdiction uh, does play into the way you conduct the arbitration. Uh, Excuse me, the mediation. mediation. (laughs) And and so... um, Yes, there are differences. If you ask me personally, in my experience, caucusing is an absolute uh, positive tool. Um, You know, I've worked with parties who did not really want to be in the same room anymore. And when you start from from that uh, from that perspective, right. you know, being able to put them in separate rooms and to then, you know, shuffle between them and, oh uh, you know, bring them together closer and closer. You know, it's really, uh, it's really an effort. But mm-hmm. in the end, when you succeed to bring them back together in one room, it's, uh, it's very powerful. Absolutely. And it does something to the people, you know, it changes the atmosphere, you know, it's amazing to see. And, you know, it's not something context or, uh, you know, workplace mediation context. Mm-hmm. It also applies very much to a commercial setting where you're dealing with top managers that are handling large accounts. Right. Um, and, and this, I believe, is something that is also very often disregarded in, in the mediation debate. You know, those Absolutely. principles apply because, you know, in the end, it's a people's business um, and, and uh, we're all humans. And, <laughs> yeah. uh, you know, show me the one person that is not affected by, I don't know, a confession, you know, a handshake, some minor gesture. Um, it works. That's Absolutely. all I can say. Absolutely. And so, so now you get the parties back in the room. They're finally seeing eye to eye on certain issues and then they want to come to some sort of settled agreement or 
Uh, and you say that, you know, to have it be enforceable, it'd have to be a consent award, but how does this work? Do the parties um, go separately and draft their own? Do, do, does one party submit the draft? Do you draft the consent award? How does that, how does that work in practice? There are different approaches, really. So basically, my ideal scenario, and this is how I play it when I act as mediation counsel, is that I come to the table already with a rudimentary draft of the settlement agreement. I have it in my pocket. And when the time is right, I reach out to uh, opposing counsel and I tell them, well, you know, let's start drafting. Mm -hmm. And uh, it's always nice to be in the driver's seat with the first draft at hand. So, um, you know, that's not a big trade secret (laughs) I'm giving away here. (laughs) Um, Anyway, so counsel do the drafting work. Um, Usually that happens when the mediator is still working with the parties to, you know, solicit that final commitment and to, you know, also agree on the final numbers and terms. So in the end, when everybody comes back together with the mediator, you put in the numbers and you usually you project the text on a wall or you have it up on your iPad or whatever and you run through it, you know, just a very professional negotiation setting. And when everybody is in agreement, Mm -hmm. you sign the thing. And the mediator's role really is limited to um, overseeing that final step in the negotiation, making sure that really all the parts that went into the settlement agreement are also um, reflected in the written uh, settlement. And, and, and that's it. I mean, when you're working with a mediator that is also trained as a lawyer, and if um, both parties agree, um, the mediator can also engage in the drafting process. I would nevertheless say that this is really, um, you know, only the case in the minority of of, of cases. Yeah. Right. So uh, basically, you know, it's the council's task. And this is why I personally am very much in favor of having council present in the mediation. I mean, you, you will have heard the arguments that, you know, bringing your lawyer to the mediation is not a good idea because they're not interested in, you know, resolving the issues quickly because it affects their, you know, fees and so on and so forth. I think those are all myths. Um, I have worked with excellent uh, colleagues in mediation and, you know, I got the sense that, you know, the lawyers are actually quite satisfied when they were able to give their uh, clients a quick solution, something that is not as offensive uh, as an arbitral word. Um, You know, people like to have a stake in, 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 in outcomes and in arbitration, you are in the hands of the arbitrators alone Mm -hmm. and you cannot really influence what's, um, what's uh, the final result. So, um, that, that that's basically that last step. You work with your opposing counsel uh, towards 
an enforceable agreement. That's really also where the lawyer is so important. Right. Um, they can judge what is needed to make that document an enforceable title. And um, that's also something that, that I cannot stress sufficiently enough. You know, you need to have, you know, all the stages of the procedure lined up in front of you to, to really guide your clients towards a result that matters. And enforcement, unfortunately, still matters a lot for parties in dispute. I mean, it usually when this question about enforcement is asked, what people tell you is, you know, um, it's mediation and it's consensual. And therefore, you know, most of the time, Enforcement is not really needed because, you know, we're dealing amongst gentlemen. And if you have that agreement, it's going to be complied with. Right. <laughs> but bottom line is, is that, you know, the mere uh, awareness of the fact that what you agree to is also enforceable adds to the sustainability of the agreement. Of course. And if there isn't an agreement, unfortunately, you've met and there is no agreement, would you, is it just, okay, let's hop back into the arbitration right where we left off? Is that how it works? Um, pretty much, yes. I mean, the thing is, when you design this ARB mid-ARB procedure, you build in uh, certain timeframes within which uh, you should try to come to a negotiated solution. And if that time frame expires, of course, consensually, the parties can extend it if they feel like it makes sense to give it another try. Um, but once it becomes clear that the mediation will not lead to the desired results, then usually one party would signal to the mediator in that case uh, that they don't see any any um, any hope for a negotiated solution and then the institution usually would get involved to uh, you know continue with the arbitration and this is a very critical phase of the procedure also with respect to this double heading question that you brought up earlier so um, you know it this double heading debate comes exactly from this arb mid arb um, setting and also general consideration of making a dispute resolution process more effective. So your arbitrator, um, you know, becoming a mediator at one point, and if the mediation is not successful, going back to acting as arbitrator and deciding uh, the case yeah so basically what's important here is is that uh, you know when you look at the um, procedural rules of the leading institutions so I don't know the ICC uh, Stockholm uh, chambers Swiss chambers LCIA VIAG uh, even they don't have any rules on this double heading issue right. yeah right. the only rules where we see it is uh, in the Chinese arbitration law and in the CETAC rules. And there the rule is that both parties need um, to request the mediator to act 
as arbitrator once the mediation has failed, right? And you know what's very interesting also is is that in Australia and in New Zealand, um, it's not only that the parties need to consent for the mediator to go back to arbitrating, they also need to expressly consent for the arbitrator to become a mediator. So there's this double uh, consent requirement. Mm -hmm. And we see that also reflected in the so-called soft arbitration law, IBA guidelines 2014, Prague rules 2018. There you also have this express consent requirement. And I personally think this is a good thing because it really sharpens uh, the party's awareness of, you know, what it is that they are now getting into at that next stage that follows. And, you know, I, I touched about this confidentiality requirement for mediation. And um, we talked about caucusing. So just imagine that in the mediation, the, the mediator was caucusing, they uh, got confidential information on, you know, the drivers behind the party's positions, their true interests. And now we're going back to the mediation, uh, to the arbitration, excuse me. So there is a concern that, you know, you cannot possibly remain neutral as an arbitrator, having learned about those details of the dispute. Right. And there's different approaches to, to, to that um, situation. And um, we can, you know, look at what, what is called the Chinese method on the one hand and the Hong Kong method on the other. So Chinese method means, and, and this is regulated in the CETAC arbitration rules, um, whatever was shared with the mediator on a confidential basis must also remain confidential in the arbitration. So whatever happened in a private caucus cannot be the content of the arbitration. Yeah? Mm-hmm. And opposed to that, we have the Hong Kong method where your um, arbitrator mediator is obliged to disclose all relevant information obtained in mediation um, if the mediation fails. And that is um, also reflected in Singapore and in Australia. So we do see Mm. a trend there, how you deal with this uh, confidentiality issue. And, uh, you know, when when you make this decision of whether your mediator can go back and act as an arbitrator, when you make that a decision of the parties, you raise awareness and you also do not create any problems with respect to, um, you know, what we say is an implicit waiver of an objection to uh, perceived partiality of the mediator arbitrator, because then you bring it up and basically any uh, implied waiver falls away automatically when the parties at that second juncture say, well, you know, we want that person that earned our trust as a mediator to also act as our arbitrator now. I think that's a wonderful pro tip to end this segment on. Um, And I think that whole confidentiality mediation could be its own segment (laughs) because it it is really fascinating and it's really true how it does, how it can bleed into the arbitration and how parties can really regulate that because I I can imagine it being 
almost like a legal fiction on how you can compartmentalize what you've learned where and <laughs> <laughs> difficult. Um, Absolutely. But thank you so much um, for this definitely uh, meaningful discussion on on mediation. And I, I already see it um, coming into play more and more in, in my own cases. So I can only imagine we're on the crest of, of even more. I would hope so. I would hope so in the interest of... Um, the users of international dispute resolution services. Right. And, you know, I mean, in my experience, they jump on board. Your clients come on their journey with you. And when you sit them down and when you walk them through, I don't know, a decision tree analysis, they're like, oh, okay. Mm -hmm. So um, this is serious. So let's try and see what we can do in this negotiation. And um, then you're really after something meaningful and very rewarding from a professional perspe uh, perspective. Right. And we should present our clients with this tool, tool belt of, of what they can really use. Sure. Yeah. Um, all right. Well, without further ado, welcome to the podcast, James Claxton. How are you? I'm great. Thank you so much for having me. Great. As I was just saying, uh, it's fantastic to be here. I'm slightly uh, starstruck <laughs> by being here with you. And you're joining us from a mediation center. Yeah, very, very appropriately. I'm joining you from the Japan International Mediation Center, which is based in Kyoto, where I live. Oh, amazing. So you are an independent, neutral, and arbitrator and mediator based in Japan, as you just said, but you have a background in all types of disputes as you worked as counsel previously, but you're also a professor at Washita University and also Rikyo University in Tokyo. Yeah, that's right. I teach some um, undergraduate courses at Rikyo, and then I teach graduate courses at, at Waseda, bo both universities in Tokyo. Amazing. But we have you here to talk about mediation. And separately from Anne-Karin Grill, who we just interviewed, we have you here to talk about the intersection between mediation and investor state disputes. Right. Have you, so have you acted as a mediator in, in an investor state dispute, or is it just uh, an academic interest? For the moment, it's just an academic interest. Uh, I would, I'd, I'd love to at, at, at some point, but really my practice is only commercial at this point, international commercial. Right. Well, would you just mind kind of like laying out the framework of, of this particular aspect of mediation? Sure, I would love to. Um, so I think it's, it, it's a really interesting fact that the investor state dispute resolution system really kind of in a way got to start with, with mediation. Uh, the World Bank, in particular, the vice president and president, had acted as conciliators in matters that were successful, leading to successful settlements. And this really inspired the ICSID pro project. Uh, there was a quote I came across somewhere from Aaron Brockus, a real mm -hmm. force behind <laughs> the creation of ICSID. And he said that the experience of conciliation actually began ringing the bells in his head about the creation of, of the ICSID Center. Mm. So really, ICSID came into existence with um, the idea of offering both arbitration and conciliation services. And every expectation at that moment was that conciliation would be the process that was more often chosen um, by the parties. Of course, things have worked out differently. <laughs> yeah, exactly. But you were also you were at Exit as counsel. Yeah, that's right. I was. I was. I was at Exit in the secretariat for two years. I didn't work on on any um, 
uh, mediation projects, okay. either on active cases or or otherwise. But that's right. I was I was part of the secretariat for a couple of years. Did you see any mediations coming through, even though you didn't have a a hand in working on them? No, you know, it really only came up uh, later. So after ICSID, I moved to Japan and I began teaching. And I helped out organizing a course in international commercial mediation. And at the same time, I was teaching a course in, in uh, international um, investment law and policy. And so the two just kind of coincided and it got me thinking about these issues. Um, and then I began writing about them and thinking about them more. Right. So if we just start from like the initial step, which I would say would be the consent, how how do I mean, when you look at the BITs or any like um, MCTs or um, how how do states really consent to mediation if it's not expressly provided for in the treaty or do are there BITs where mediation is or conciliation is expressly provided for? Yeah, absolutely. That's a that's a, a, a great question. Uh, there are, in fact, provisions specifically for mediation in treaties. Some old generation treaties, uh, in, in fact, and a few, a few newer generation treaties would provide for ICSID conciliation as one of the alternatives available to um, investors. And, um, you know, we, before we, we, we talked about how ICSID was created with the idea that these two services would be offered kind of on, on equal footing. Um, Part of the reason, perhaps, why conciliation did not take off the way that arbitration has is because the provisions for conciliation were kind of on equal footing in the treaties with arbitration, which raised a question about whether choosing conciliation might close off the opportunity to arbitrate later. Uh, so that was one of the, the reasons, perhaps, why conciliation um, was less popular than it might have been otherwise. Another reason might be that the conciliation process provided by ICSID is actually quite similar to the arbitration process in mm -hmm. many respects. Um, there typically are three member um, uh, conciliation commissions. There's a possibility to challenge the competence of the commission to try and disqualify one of the members of the commission because they're not independent and impartial. And at the end of the process, there is a written report that's issued. So for all of those reasons, the process does look a lot like ICSID um, arbitration, but the important distinction, of course, is at the end of the conciliation process, there is no definite result. If there is a result, it's because the parties agree to settle the case on their own terms. And they may well take the written report issued by the conciliators into account in reaching that oh, decision, but there's nothing that requires them to uh, resolve their dispute at the end of the conciliation. Whereas of course, in arbitration, there will be a binding decision. So maybe some combination between uncertainty about the effect of choosing conciliation and then the process itself led to conciliation being taken up less often than it might have. Um, right. one, one more thought about that is that it could be that the parties might have just understood the arbitration uh, process better. Sorry, the, the investors who were choosing could have understood, might have understood the, the, uh, the arbitration process better. Um, because, uh, of course, the exit convention came into force in 1966. Uh, 1966, I think, is right. Mm -hmm. The New York Convention had already been 
in force for some years, and the Geneva Protocol and the Geneva Convention had been in around since the 1920s. So it may well be that the investors were just more um, comfortable. They they understood arbitration better than they did conciliation, right. and so that was perhaps another reason why arbitration really eclipsed conciliation as the preferred method for resolving disputes. Um, so that I've, your question seems like now it was a long time ago. No, no, uh, no, but no. Your question actually related related to how parties end up in uh, in mediation. Right. So one option would be that there would be a clause providing for exit conciliation directly in the treaty, in which case it's the choice of the investor. More recent treaties, they increasingly mention mediation as an option available. And then there are a few treaties that actually make mediation compulsory in different mm -hmm. ways. Is it as part of a kind of a procedural step before arbitration or is it, is it to the exclusion of arbitration? Yeah, I think it's uh, the, 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 the former. I think there is at least one treaty, the treaty between Iraq and Jordan, which uh, seems to make mediation a precondition to arbitration. So a necessary step before arbitration is possible. And there also are treaties which give states the right to compel the investors to conciliate before arbitration is possible. For example, there's a, a SIPA between Australia and Indonesia. And that's, that's an example of that mechanism. So there are certain with compulsions. Wouldn't the devil's advocate be that you already have this cooling off period embedded in these treaties and that that is really what's intended during this cooling off period is to enter into negotiation. So it becomes a bit redundant to have a conciliation procedural element. Yeah, I think you're right to point to the period um, of the, the cooling off, the, the, the cooling off period, because it does offer uh, perhaps an especially good opportunity for the investor and state to try mediation. And some of the treaties will, in fact, encourage that the parties consider mediation at that particular moment. Right. Um, the effect that that has might depend, at least in part, on the specific terms of the cooling off period. As you know, the, the length of the cooling off period differs. Um, it might be three months, it might be six months, it could be even up to a year. Right. Uh, another relevant factor in whether or not that would be a good opportunity for uh, settlement negotiations or for mediation is how much information the state has about the investor claims at that moment. And that is, of course, in part based on just how the dispute has developed and how much information the investor has given. Right. But it also is in part based on the notice requirement in the treaty. Mm -hmm. And these actually vary quite a bit. And where a notice requirement is tied to the beginning of the cooling off period and where it requires the investor to provide a good, uh, a good bit of information about their claims and about the quantum of damages that they're seeking uh, and more, more specific details, then I think that really puts the disputants in a good position to potentially uh, mediate or to engage in settlement negotiations. Right. Where there is not that requirement, then it may well be that the state doesn't have enough information during the cooling off period that it can actually um, secure the budget that it needs to uh, finance the mediation. Uh, and it may just not be in a position where it really understands the nature of the investor claims at that 
uh, particular moment. Yeah, that's a good point. And it was something that I, you know, this asymmetry in information, but also just this asymmetry and preparedness when this claim arises. And I think you, to, to kind of piggyback on your point, there is an issue with the fact, you know, we have this issue, for example, in emergency arbitration proceedings where the, the government doesn't even know where to send this dispute, like which ministry is going to handle it, as you say, the budget. Is, is this a real risk with mediation as well, considering that this comes at an initial phase? And also, since it's not as formal, we can use, for lack of a better term, as arbitration, then then the government wouldn't A, take it seriously, or B, if it wanted to take it seriously, wouldn't know what to do? Yeah, great. I think you, I think you raised two really important points. One point is when mediation is appropriate. And there I would just say that I think there's, um, a, there, there's a, a good reason to think that mediation could also be successful even after the cooling off period and the arbitration is, is underway. If, if, right. if there is no mediation before that. Uh, and there was a, a recent study, I think it actually hasn't been published yet, but it's on the way by Herbert Smith, Freehills, and um, an arbitration mediation institution based in London. And I think what that says is that uh, settlement rates are actually quite high, even once arbitration is underway. So I think one important point is to think of mediation not necessarily as something that will necessarily happen before the arbitration, but a process that can be engaged by the parties at really any point over the course of the arbitration, even, even after the arbitration, where there's an issue of um, enforcement. It might All make right. good sense to try and, 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 and mediate an issue of enforcement. But the other point that you raised was about the preparedness of the states. And I think you had Jeremy Sharp on previously talking yeah. about an advisory center. So he, he already said this much better than I could. <laughs> um, but I think the idea is that the better, the better a state is prepared for claims, the more likely it will be able to engage in settlement negotiations or mediation at an early point and where the state has a way of identifying claims and elevating those claims uh, to uh, a core body that is responsible for managing the disputes and where that body can uh, sort of work across different ministries mm -hmm. and access funds and access outside counsel, then the state will be in a really good position to try and settle or to try and uh, mediate. Right. I just, I mean, all of this is really making me think of Often Fall, which is this, you know, juggernaut of a case that has just reached a settlement. And the question on everyone's mind is, could the settlement have been reached sooner? But I think, I, I think it's the terms of the settlement, obviously, is particular to each specific case, but also the scope of settlement or the scope of what you would like to mediate. Um, and I think that can vary and, and people don't really maybe grasp onto that idea at, at first blush. Um, so what kind of, think, besides the ultimate case on quantum, what else could be mediated? I think really, if you start from the understanding that mediation is no more or no less than a facilitated negotiation. Right. So it's just basically inviting someone to come into the negotiation process and help the parties to communicate more effectively. If that's the starting point, then wherever negotiation could lead to a settlement, then mediation is is appropriate. Right. Now, there might be certain types of claims that um, 
are uh, that don't raise lots of issues uh, that other cases might mm -hmm. that would be more appropriate for mediating. What I have in mind here is something like um, a dispute over an investment contract or a dispute over um, uh, commitments that have been raised up through an umbrella clause, mm -hmm. because those, I think, raise less issues of public policy that might make a, that might encourage a state to actually go through an arbitration and have the um, the dispute decided by an adjudicator at the end. So it might be oh, that those kinds of cases are more na a more natural fit with mediation. But I really feel like you know any time a negotiation is appropriate, mediation is appropriate. Right. That's that's interesting because I, I mean this is the you know the the stark contrast between commercial and investment cases is this political and economic interest that kind of coincides with what's actually happening underneath commercially, um, and and also non-party stakeholders as well could also be an instance where um, mediation could help kind of resolve the dispute in a more like holistic sense than than just party to party arbitration. Yeah, that's a that's a that's a great thought, um, and I think certainly mediation is a very flexible process, so it could better accommodate third parties. On the other hand, I think that the um, disputing parties would have to agree because right. the entire thing is voluntary. Uh, whereas, if you think about you know third party participation in the arbitration context, the tribunal might have more say at the end after listening to the parties about whether or not a third party could um, participate in some way. Right. So I think, I think absolutely in theory, it's more flexible and certainly more parties can be brought in. But um, the difference is the, the disputing parties to the mediation can walk away at any time. They can right. end the process at any time. So as it is voluntary and as, I mean, as counsel, you're going to have to kind of advise, okay, this is, this is an issue that's ripe for mediation, or we think we can actually get a negotiated settlement on this, this part of the dispute. How as counsel do you sell mediation if it is voluntary and to some extent difficult to enforce what's on the other end of mm -hmm. that? How, what, what would be the pros that you would sell to your client of, you know, sending this to mediation? Well, first of all, congratulations. You're a forward-looking attorney by thinking about this in this way. <laughs> I'm, I'm like, <laughs> what, how do we encourage notes. mediation? <laughs> no, I think, no, I think great. I think, I think, um, I think certainly for, uh, for the party, uh, cost and time efficiency is important. And that's one core advantage of a right. successful mediation over an arbitration is that it will likely be faster and cheaper for the, for the client. Uh, another real advantage would be to preserve the relationship. It's more likely that um, because of the mediation process at the end, the parties will still be able to work together than is typically the case in, in arbitration. Mm -hmm. So that would be uh, another selling point for, um, for mediation. Right. I think those the, those two would get you pretty far with most with most clients. I would yeah, imagine. there was a quote that I read from the metal cloud CEO, which is quoted quite often in articles discussing mediation and investor state disputes. And he, um, I think the the legal fees there were four million, and um, MetaCloud was only awarded seventeen million. And he said, just the abhorrent procedure of arbitration, and I should have chosen uh, mediation in this type of in this type of claim. So I think that I think, yeah, cost is definitely something, um, which I guess is counsel. It's not at forefront of your mind, but cause you're That's just right. raking yeah. in fees. But, um, I think it is something that you definitely need to, to tell yeah. to your counsel. But I think another, another related point that, that you raised, we, we talked before about how mediation would be appropriate at different 
points over the course of an arbitration. Mm -hmm. um, and it's also true that mediation is quite flexible in terms of you know, what it's directed towards. So it could, of course, be directed toward uh, an attempt at a global settlement, but it could also be used to settle a specific claim, mm -hmm. which could make the arbitration uh, simpler, faster, and cheaper. Right. Or it could be really any issue, really anything that divides the parties is, is potentially something that could be settled through mediation, be it something substantive or something uh, procedural. Really, any time that an issue could be resolved more efficiently, I think it, it, it would be attractive to some clients to, to consider mediation. And maybe there are certain issues that, um, that the parties would rather keep away from the tribunal. They'd rather have it dealt with uh, sort of on their own terms right. than potentially taint the arbitration with, with certain issues. So that would be another application that's not maybe the standard uh, you know, idea that mediation is used to reach a global settlement. Right. I think, yeah, I, even just looking at procedural order number one in cases and how parties are just so deferential to the, how the arbitral tribunal has structured it, even though they themselves don't think it may tailor nicely to their interests. If you think of like document production or, or these types of things. And, and as counsel, you just kind of leave it to the arbitrators to decide and you don't want to upset the apple cart in that scenario. But right. I think, uh, I, yeah, I think, as you say, it can come up in any, you know, even the smallest detail, the seat of arbitration, for example, if that's not provided for, can be something that right. can be mediated. Which is, absolutely. Which is there, you know, there's a lot of creative thought uh, now being given to uh, different ways that mediation can be encouraged. And one of the really creative ideas um, that I've heard expressed is the idea of kind of a standing mediator. So appointing a mediator at a very early point in a oh, case, and the mediator's kind of there and on call. Uh, and anytime the mediator could be of service to the parties, they can step in and, and, and help. And again, the, pr the process is really just, it's just negotiation with some professional help. Uh, so it, it's, it seems quite appropriate um, as a way of, of, of getting around certain thorny issues that come up in arbitration. Yeah, that's a good point. Because if you talk about cost, and that's being kind of the, the pro of mediation, then it, in my mind, I would say, well, wait a second, if we're hopping back and forth between two different procedures, wouldn't that bring its own cost? But with the standing mediator, or just acknowledging that it's just a negotiation with, with help, the cost isn't that much. You're just basically sending emails to a, a different email account. <laughs> <laughs> sure, and it would be you know it'd be a, a process of you as the 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 council discussing you know the pros and cons of mediating uh, with your with your client, and then come to some you know understanding about what's best in different circumstances. But right. it could certainly be an advantage to have someone there in place, so that there's not the need to go through the process of finding uh, a mediator, appointing a mediator. If they're there and they're right. on call and their services are available, it, it seems like an attractive option to me. As your role as mediator and as neutral, how, how do you handle confidential information that's shared um, in the initial stages when you contact individual parties or the mediation bleeding into the arbitration, um, what kind of procedure safeguards do you put in place for confidentiality and how does that really come to play? Yeah, right. That's a, it's, it's a great question and a, a, a sort of a very difficult issue yeah. in the age of transparency. Uh, so mediation, of course, is a, is a confidential process. There are different layers of confidentiality. 
the, um, the fact that there is a mediation already is something that could be protected by confidentiality. Uh, and then anything that occurs over the course of the mediation or any documents would also be protected, could be protected by confidentiality. And then even within the process, where the mediator decides to meet with one of the parties and not the other uh, in a private session, that also is confidential even within the process. So normally the information shared to the mediator won't be shared with the other party um, unless the party sharing the information wants the information shared. I see. So there are multiple layers of confidentiality and the process really works because it, it is that way. You know, parties would not be forthcoming in a private session if they thought that the mediator would uh, share everything that they, right. they said. Because there is the shield of confidentiality, they can speak very candidly about the interests that lie underneath the positions that they're taking in a particular dispute. Right. The reason, of course, why this is um, especially difficult is because important gains have been made in investment arbitration in the direction of transparency with the ancestral rules and the Mauritius Convention. Mm -hmm. And so I think that some people look at mediation and they say, well, we don't want to lose the gains of, con of, um, of transparency just because the parties choose a mediation process and not the arbitration process. Mm -hmm. I think that's a really in, uh, under, uh, understandable uh, position to Absolutely. take. Um, a, a different perspective is that mediation is really no more or no less than inviting someone to help parties to negotiate better. Mm -hmm. And so if simply adding someone to the negotiation table were to trigger broad transparency obligations, then it would discourage parties from using mediation or if the mediation were in the context of an institution that had rules for, that provided for transparency, they may avoid that institution or that, that particular process. So it's a, it's a very difficult issue, the transparency issue. Yeah, absolutely. Spe specifically dealing with like how we're all concerned about legitimacy issues arising with arbitration and how confidentiality basically clashes with that um, interest. But I, I think you're right when you're, you know, anyone who's entered into a negotiation, if you know that certain elements are going to be confidential, it just allows for can the candid nature and, and then the parties buy in a bit more to the procedure. Um, I have another question that relates a bit to legitimacy or transparency. Um, let's say legitimacy. I, with investment arbitration, I think one of the great aspects of it as a common law lawyer is the precedential value of previous cases. Um, with mediation and negotiation and settlement, sometimes you lose out on this precedential mm -hmm. value of how previous cases have decided, and especially this common law tradition of citing old case law has really bled into investment arbitration. Do you think that we risk losing some of that really helpful precedent if we encourage mediation to the fullest extent? Yeah, it's a great question. And certainly, certainly there, there would be the effect um, that there would be uh, less information about how cases are decided. But that actually might be uh, a real positive uh, for states in particular. States are, are often very um, concerned about being consistent in the positions that they take on legal issues. Right. So it actually provided that the mediation is confidential, that could be seen as an incentive for the states because they're not required to take a firm position that they would be required to take to take in arbitration. 
Um, you know, back to your back to your question, though. I mean, I think that's really it's a, a the fundamental uh, you know question about whether or not there is precedential value of a decided arbitration. Um, so that sort of underlies the, yeah. the important the important question that you raise. But yeah, as a practical matter, absolutely, you're right. There would be fewer uh, fewer awards. The parties could always have their settlement agreement um, published. But right. um, yeah, I, I don't know if there's any reason to believe that will happen the way it's happening with awards and arbitration. Right. And to that the, about settlement agreements, you said in the beginning of our conversation that they were reports issued. And then what what is included in those reports? Is it just a recommendation to the parties? And then how does that become a settled agreement and does that change the effect of what's been decided? Yes. Okay, great. So I should be I should be clear that when I talked about the written reports, I was only talking about the ICSID conciliation process. Okay. Uh, and so that process, one of the distinctive features is that at the end, the conciliators will, will draft a report with recommendations. And it's really just meant to be kind of a guidepost for the parties. And it's not binding in any way. What the parties can do is they can take that into account when they draft their own agreement, which will settle their dispute. If they, if they want to settle their dispute, they're not required to. Right. Um, but that process is, is quite unique. What's um, more common is, and, and what's certainly consistent with the draft mediation rules that ICSID is now uh, working on, is that there is no report at the end. The mediator is simply there to help the parties to negotiate. Mm -hmm. And if they settle, great, bring in the attorneys and the attorneys will draft the settlement agreement and that will conclude the dispute. Um, but the, the, the mediators won't themselves write down uh, uh, recommendations to the parties okay. about how their dispute might be decided. That's more common. And they won't draft the settlement agreement, the provisions of the settlement agreement either then. Yeah, I think, I think it really, uh, mediators often like to leave that work to the attorneys. Right. <clears throat> And then enforce it. So then only once it's a settlement agreement, how would that, you know, if we, if we talk about the Singapore convention and enforceability, it's not necessary that Singapore convention recognizes the enforcement of investment award or set investment or disputes that have been settled. Right. Um, because it just references commercial, but um, how, how does that become enforceable if, if at all? So if it, if it were the case that there were an arbitration started and the proceedings were stayed, and then there were a mediation, then the, uh, the settlement agreement at the end uh, could be issued as a consent award. And then the enforcement process would be either under the ICSID convention or the New York convention. Mm -hmm. um, as you point out, uh, things are a little unclear under the Singapore convention. That's because the first, well, one of the requirements to use the convention is that the dispute be commercial. And the word commercial is not defined in the Singapore Convention, um, although the the drafters seem to have in mind that at least some inv investment cases would be covered by the convention, but I think there's consensus now that it does apply to at least some uh, investor state uh, mediations, and I think that can be understood in part because the term commercial would normally suggest investments. Mm -hmm. I mean, there, there are at least some investments that are commercial in nature. And part of it goes to a reading of the preamble of the Singapore Convention. 
and it does seem consistent with the purpose of that instrument that um, uh, investment disputes would be uh, covered by the convention. And then another point that's often made is that at the same time that UNCTRAL was drafting the Singapore Convention, they were also drafting a model law on mediation. That uh, instrument does, in fact, define commercial to include um, investment. Oh, okay. So for, for all these reasons, I think there's, there's a consensus that at least some investor state uh, d mediations will be covered. Mm. Well, I think that's a great uh, note to end on is that there is, you know, hope for the enforcement of, of settled agreements and mediation. Um, it's funny because in the podcast, I think it was the first season, it was a happy fun time segment was mediation and why should we even consider it? And now we're dedicating a whole episode to it. So I think that alone in its, its banal sense is uh, indicative of how it's really becoming a, a more important feature that parties and council should consider. Yeah, we, we're, we're taking over. It'll be the, uh, <laughs> the, the, the mediation station before you yeah, know it. Exactly. The spin-off. <laughs> Well, thank you so much. It was a pleasure speaking with you. Absolutely. Thank you so much. It's been, a, it's been great. Thank you. Diversity of diversity. So that term doesn't come from me. It's not, you know, I know it sounds really catchy and you could attribute it to me. Of course you can. But it, I, I actually thought about it without knowing uh, that, of course, people used it in the past already. Um, and uh, an example is, uh, and I'm going to cite here because Jill loves that when I cite references to non-legal uh, sources. Because it's like, why, why is she even bringing that up? But... <laughs> Anyways, I still will. So Academy of Management Perspectives. That's the police. Yes. That's, that's, that's the police, police arresting you for not citing academic works. <laughs> okay, sorry. Uh, so yeah, I was interrupted by the police, but I in still Cambridge, will do it. Right? You're in Cambridge. In Cambridge. In Cambridge. Course, the police comes in Cambridge when you're trying yeah. to cite non-legal <laughs> text. <laughs> exactly. Oh my god, that's funny. Uh, yeah, so um, there's an article published a long time ago, actually now, it's 2007, um, in Academy of Management Perspectives that was called On the Diversity of Diversity, Tidy Logic, Messier Realities. And I thought it was really interesting because it's, it's important for our field. Everyone is talking about diversity, have been talking, has been talking about diversity for a long time. And uh, in fact, there was a talk I was just telling in the intro, we did a, a, a talk about a forthcoming book that's called Identity and Diversity on the Judicial Bench, which is a forthcoming book um, and uh, by Freya Bentins. And it's really interesting because there are all these different dimensions of diversity. Of course, the first one that comes to mind is, and Jules spoke about it, you know, when we talk about parental leave, and it's also it's also about gender diversity, right? And there's a lot of discussion about gender diversity, but it's so much more complex than that, I think. And in the arbitration world, and guys, of course, correct me if I'm wrong, but we are hearing discussions about, how, you know, when we talk about diversity, and also, in fact, the equal representation pledge that Joel just mentioned is very much focused on gender diversity. Right. Um, and so when I was uh, researching for this book and to add to the discussion um, and reading the, the chapters, it was really interesting to me to look at the, in the 
for example, specifically in the investment arbitration context, the initial discussion historically was on when we were speaking about diversity, it was on uh, the rich versus the poor. So when we want representation of arbitrator, and here I'm talking about, you know, the tribunals, and not necessarily diversity at the wider spectrum in conferences and in law firms, etc. But if you focus on arbitrators, they're just, you know, the discussion was, well, we need more arbitrators from the developed uh, world as opposed to, uh, no, the developing world, sorry, uh, versus developed world, right? So it was at the time Western centric, and now we want, you know, more, for example, African arbitrators. I think, uh, I think it's even in the ICSID convention that ICSID, when making appointment, has to take geographical representation into account or something like that. And so that yes. kind of diversity is actually enshrined in, in a document that's like 50. Right. Yes, and also in the ICJ, right, when the, they right. appoint judges, there's, there's reference to that. The ICC and a couple of other institutions use nationality as a proxy as well for arbitrators. So saying that you cannot actually be of the same nationality of one of the parties. So that's, um, in a way, you know, diversify and keep neutral um, the arbitrators. Yeah. Oh, really? yes. like, okay, you can't be American. Oh, let's appoint a Canadian. You can't be French. Let's yeah, exactly. <laughs> exactly. So there are really, you know, there's complexities within that as well is how do you define, you know, um, you know, where, where you, I mean, is nationality the thing, but what about your origins? What about where you practice? What about, I mean, there's a whole bunch of questions on that. Right. Um, but then the discourse that when we talk about diversity is really much focused on, okay, we need more women also on these, uh, on these tribunals because the numbers are terrible. Um, and, and, and again, my feeling is, and I might be wrong, but that all these questions, so here I gave only two examples, you know, geographical diversity, or um, it's not even the racial diversity aspect that's mentioned, the geographical one, um, and gender diversity, they're, they're dealt with in isolation, and not holistically. And that doesn't translate the reality of what our practices and of the real world. Um, so I think there's there's a when you address a problem, I think the first thing to do is to be able to define it properly, right? To find the right solutions. And I feel That's like um, we're not getting to the right definition and the solutions that we're having also, and that's the second problem, which I wanted to speak about, is there's what do we look diverse, uh, right? So it's a question of, okay, tick marking, oh, we have that many women on the bench, or we have that many African arbitrators on the bench, or we have that many first appointees, right? Um, but these numbers that are cited by institutions or by reports or do they really reflect diversity is the question. Because if you have repeat appointments with the same woman appointed over and over again, right. then again, it doesn't create diversity. Also, same um, example, if you have African arbitrators that only sit on African-related matters, then does that create diversity, right? Um, so anyways, that, that was, I think that's, that's some questions that are relevant for you know, for discussion in, in the arbitration world. What what have your, both of your experiences been when when you discuss diversity within, you know, your your colleagues or um, other, other people in the field? 
Yeah, it's definitely like a, there's a quantitative threshold that I think people have different markers in different places. And I think that needs to be harmonized. So a lot of people, like you're saying, will see one woman on a panel and say, okay, we've done our job. Like now we can relax. And a lot of people think, no, the threshold is actually much further away and we need to, and we need to get there. And we talked about this with um, defective tribunals and saying that, you know, we are only focusing on gender diversity and there's, you know, uh, like you could say nationality, but like geographic representation, sexual orientation, whatever it may be, mm. that needs to be represented as well. And so the, the 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 issue is not just about, and it's not just about like you know if you're talking about parental leave, it's not just about mothers. Gender, the gender question is not about maternity leave. The gender mm. question is about how can a woman who's dealing with these issues advance in society at, or in, in the um, field as quickly and as effectively as, as a man can. So it's, all, it's always been the question, as you say, is not defined or improperly defined. And that's really where it, the discussion should start. Since we're all in like on the non-legal stuff, I, I find there's a, a separate discussion that, that, that feeds into this a little bit that I've been paying attention to about the, the myth of meritocracy it's essentially the Harvard professor, Michael Sandel, mm. who's written about this a lot, arguing that obviously there is no such thing as meritocracy, but we try to, to stick to it because that it rewards those of us who believe that we are the product of meritocracies, whereas in fact, we're all products of various structures that favor a certain type of people and a certain type of behavior. And he, he is essentially arguing that we, we don't, there is no meritocracy and we should stop kidding ourselves. And I think that applies in particular to the world of arbitration, where maybe extra so the, the senior members of our field tend to say it doesn't matter, obviously, if you're man or woman, brown, black or white, or what your sexual orientation is. If, if, if your draft on paper is good and if you behave in like a responsible professional way, you will get rewarded and you will reach the senior stratus of the field. We don't care about your background. Yeah. <laughs> And I don't yeah. think that is, that is true, but that's, that's been sort of the way out of things traditionally. That's <laughs> well, the ideal world. And I think, I think, oh, sorry, Brian, go ahead. No, go ahead. I was going to say it's a de facto, it's de facto exclusion where it's like uh, anyone who has the merit can advance, but you need to be here all day, every day and all night. And if once a month, if you have a bit of a cramp and we all know why you have that, you can't have any. <laughs> and and if you leave at any time for a period of three months or longer, which if you want to have anything sort of a future of a family, that's not going to work for us. But it's equal. It's it's all equal. And then it's just like, okay, I mean, let's call it what it is. Yeah, exactly. And and in fact, I think there's been researchers done on, you know, the, the corporations that used the discourse of meritocracy are those who favor men over women in reality. Um, so it's a very dangerous uh, world, uh, word. Sorry, dangerous world as well. Both, uh, both, both. No, that's a very good point. Can I, can I ask you, so just to be the devil's advocate, because I like to do that even if I don't necessarily agree, because you hear this a lot. I'm curious if you have a response, because when we're talking about women advancing or, or diversity in the context of gender, I think it is hard now and you don't hear it anymore to say that, but it's so hard to find women on panels. It's so hard to find <sighs> women on, on tribunals. It, you hear that occasionally, but I think that as sort of a, a knee-jerk defense is almost gone because it's hard to argue against that there are now so many capable women. Is that the same? Because you hear that, to tie it back to your overarching diversity of diversity theme, 
I've heard that many times when it comes to people of color or people who represent other perspectives than the traditional one. That Couldn't you say that that argument actually flies a little bit better if we're talking about finding someone who's non, non-white, non-European? Because it is de facto like harder. The, the pipeline has been leaking for such a long time that you can't find those people. I think there are so many talented people from all over the world. Honestly, it's just, um, I think they maybe have not been promoted the same way. They maybe haven't had the same opportunities to speak at conferences. And I think it's a self-fulfilling you know, cycle in this field, right? Because you would, how do you know about this, that person? Um, because of course there's reputation from clients, from colleagues, but there's a lot of, you know, conferences and getting those opportunities. So give those people opportunities to present and why does it necessarily have to be you know when we if we talk about racial diversity and we have people from ENO or fresh fields or this and that who are I'm not saying they shouldn't be promoted that's amazing but is that what we mean in arbitration to have racial diversity is to have like an Oxbridge person who works right. at you know I'm not giving any names or anything it's a hypothetical but coming from a magic circle firm are of course they have merit as well but shouldn't we be aiming to have more people from you know from soul practitioners and <laughs> yeah soul practitioners from different jurisdictions who are not in the big law firms and who are equally you know working on these amazing um cases and and are should should be represented so it's it, uh, the, uh, to come back to your question joel um Yes, I still hear that, even for women, actually, even if you say that it's I, I still hear people say, oh, but we tried to get people on the panel, but we just couldn't find anyone or um, or I, I, I still have that discourse or, you know, again, for um, when you want geographic representation, it's the same thing. It's really hard to find someone who speaks good English. And you're just like, what oh, are you gosh. talking about? Yeah, <laughs> I heard that as well. Um, and usually maybe that's the problem also having everything in English, like maybe that's an issue uh, for integration and, um, and diversity. There's also another point in this article, which I find really interesting. And I was thinking, how can we use that? Obviously, I'm sure that's been researched done after that article, but how can we apply that in the international arbitration context? While we're having this discourse about diversity, the, um, the underlying assumption is diversity is good, right? Mm -hmm. That's why we're having this discourse. Uh, but is diversity, and here I'm going to be provocative, but because this article is really interesting, it studies what kind of diversity is good. Because they said that, for example, in situations where you have what they call disparity, so disparity is where, for example, between us three, um, if one of us had more status and power, Now, I don't have the definitions exactly under my eyes of what they mean by status and power, but you could also take, you know, the symbolic capital um, expression that, you, that is used under dealing in virtue by Desolée and Gart that actually refer to Bourdieu, uh, the sociologist, but is how much maybe we could translate that as how much gravitas you have, you know, in the field. Um, and the research is that if you don't have the same status and power, Or maybe just to nail it down as, for example, you have a partner in a trainee in a meeting, you know, so you've got diversity, but whose uh, voice is going to be listened to more, right? The partners or the trainees? 
you know and it's the same i think in an arbitrary you know in arbitration in a tribunal uh, maybe and we have to be careful about that because maybe your voice you know gets not listened the same way or you know it's it's a it's a question it's a question they also talk about separation that is when you have polarized view so for example you know uh, you're uh, on on specific topics you know for sure that one person is going to argue um, in favor or something or someone's going to be completely against that same thing so in the investor state world maybe that could reflect as someone being pro state pro state and the other one being completely pro investor and you know how efficient is that is that it that's that kind of diversity on a panel good or do they cancel each other out you know um so that's also an additional point i think people need to think in arbitration that's a great what, point uh, what kind of diversity do we want yeah yeah you can't just have a bunch of juniors from a certain nationality and say that i'm diverse because all my juniors are from this nationality but it's yeah it's also perspectives you're right it's also perspectives experience and you know joel you know this a, a phd someone who has a phd going into private practice for some reason there's like an inexplicable gap there and you have you know have some boutiques like you know Volterra Fieta having you know definitely bringing in people from the academic background into private practice but what an amazing wealth of knowledge and a completely different perspective and uh, uh, of course there's difference between like academic writing and and practical writing but like such a such a fountain of information and and a different way to approach a topic and to kind of delve in, especially in investment arbitration, where you need to delve into like historical concepts and terms like, why are you smiling, Joel? Yeah, it sounds <laughs> like you're trying to get me to buy your dinner. <laughs> <laughs> but it's true. I mean, you know, having someone who's worked in like the domestic court system for a bit, I mean, they do, they do that in Sweden. It's very common that you go and work for the domestic courts for a year or, you know, 18 months, and then you come back to private practice. And not only do you have relationships there, but you know how the system works and, mm. and, and you bring back a different way of thinking. Um, and I, I think you're right. But I think these two, don't these two go hand in hand? Don't you get a different perspective just by virtue of the fact that someone has a different orientation, someone has a different nationality, someone speaks a different language? Like you could make an amazing argument just on the linguistics alone being like, no, in the French version of this, it says this. Yeah. And that can be argued this. I mean, that is just easy popcorn for your team. But then there's an, you know, to go further on this, um, to push it a bit further also from the sociological perspective, people would say, well, even if you have this diversity of languages, geographical representation, gender, etc., you're all the same. You all evolve in the same social circles. You all come from the same school, same training. So I get resumes for positions and you're just like, whoa, <laughs> it's like cookie mate, you know, stashed at the ICC, you know, first internship magic circle firm, um, you know, masters from that, that university I'm not going to name. Everyone in like is so, you know, in appearance, there's of course diversity because some of them are women, some of them are you know, ethnically from that, but they all, and so aren't we moving toward kind of a hegemony, hegemonist, you know, style of thinking of drafting, which is also not diverse if we keep, you know, having people from the same social structures. Um, I think this might fly in the investment arbitration world more so than in the commercial arbitration world. And I think obviously the part of the problem is that in the investment arbitration, we're using a system that was made for commercial arbitration because in commercial arbitration, there's no, 
there's no public good. There's no no interest that's self-standing that, that we should have representation. And I think in investment arbitration, maybe you can argue that there's some sort of public element that would justify a more diverse bench to a larger extent than in commercial arbitration. But that's ah. Uh, so you're focused. Sorry, you're focused more on the adjudicator side than the than the counsel side. Um, so commercial arbitration and investment arbitration, you are essentially saying that maybe the diversity concerns are different. Maybe they're approached differently, but the, the fact that we want diversity as a good in itself is the same, I think. And, uh, you know, whether it's an investment or a commercial arbitration, just a knowledge that we have different people making different decisions or teaming up together, whether they're a council or arbitrators make better decisions or just bring a better outcome I think should be the same under commercial and investment but that's that's a good that's a good I, point that you made no no I'm I'm with you sorry I wasn't really saying that the diversity discussion is more important in, in investment arbitration I was just speaking specifically about the point you were making about right. representation beyond the sort of educated cookie cutter mm. right right right, right. of course of course. Well, here this guy, diversity of diversity. I guess I, I could speak on this for hours, but then people will um, say that it's cliche of me to speak about that <laughs> because I myself am a diversity of diversity. Okay. Am I not? La- last question before we <laughs> sign off. Sorry, I know this is dragging on. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Do you feel a bit offended or like a, a, a that you have to be the flag bearer on this issue or people look to you like, like I... The, I'm not going to use that example. It's horrible. But like, you know, people like be like, oh, diversity. And then the, the, everyone's eye just lands on you because you're this like beautiful mix of languages, cultures and, and everything. And then they're like, OK, Saudi, what do we do? Do you find that <laughs> offensive or do you? Are, That's a really you... good question. That's a really good question. I, you know, to, going back to uh, Jules point, and I made a joke about it. Honestly, it was, it was a true joke. Uh, I, I do think that, you know, gender issues gender diversity issues actually concern everyone, not just women. Um, and so equally, when we take about, you know, racial diversity, I think we should have a discourse with the all races, <laughs> whether they're the minority or the majority, just so we can speak together and find a solution together. Um, yeah. So it's, you know, when people um, ask me to talk, I, I always feel, you know, honored to have the opportunity to bring a voice to the table, but it's true that you just kind of like, you know, um, it's it's good to have a perspective from everyone. And I, I my perspective might be different because I'm a woman and I'm originally from Pakistan, but I'm also French or what is, but I, I, I think equally your um, views, Brian, and your views, Jewel, are super important. Mine are not more important, less important. So that's that's my take on that. Do I get offended? I don't get offended, but sometimes I laugh about it because I'm like, you know, this is, like I said, it's very cliche for women to speak about gender diversity, for, you know, um, Black American people to speak about racial diversity. It's kind of like, can we move past this, you know? Right. (laughs) Yeah. Right. That's that's just to end. on that note, thank you guys for another great episode. Tweet at us at the ARB station or email us at thearbitrationstation at gmail.com. Have a good weekend, guys. Bye. Bye. You too. Nice seeing you. Bye.